Support comes from Pacific Science Center, celebrating spring at Paxi with butterflies at the Tropical Butterfly House, sea creatures in the saltwater tide pool, and Jane Goodall, reasons for hope at the IMAX Theater, a journey around the globe to share good news stories. Learn more at PaxSci.org. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. This is Bill Radke here. Does the new Seattle Convention Center pencil out? How can we keep chat GPT away from students if we can't keep it away from software code writers? And worst chicken slow cooker ever. That and more coming up this hour on the program. And we've got a panel of journalists with me. We've got insiders, tech correspondent, Catherine Long. Welcome back, Catherine. Hey, I'm so glad to be here. Political analyst and contributing columnist Joni Balter. Hiya, Joni. Hi. In the studio and all that. Good to have you here. And Northwest <laughs> News Network correspondent and host of a new KOW podcast. I can now say the hit podcast, Ghost Herd. Great job on Ghost Herd. Anna King, welcome back to the show. Great to represent from Eastern Washington. Yeah, and you can also, it doesn't matter where you are, you can stream this show on YouTube and Facebook because we live stream it. Just search KUOW Public Radio. Let's get at the week gone by. The downtown Seattle Convention Center has gotten even giganticer. A second convention center building opened this week, 20% bigger than the original, a $2 billion expansion that the convention center's president and CEO, Jeff Blosser, says is worth it. In 2019, this building had 45 conventions. As we go forward into 2023, we actually have 63 or four conventions now in the two buildings. Yet, Joni Balter, you don't seem excited. Well, I'm a little excited. Yeah. Let me explain. It's, it's more complicated than that. I'm kind of of two minds. I'm a downtown booster. I've said that here before. And I very much want to see our downtown revitalized. And you do in a situation like our downtown is in right now, you got to do a lot of different things. you got to hit it from different angles. But I'm not sure this is the right investment at this time. I mean, do you think we have a problem uh, bringing tourists here? Last year, I think we had $3 million during during the summertime, and, and hotels were absolutely almost at capacity. That's not our actual problem. Our problem downtown, and there are many problems downtown, is sort of the street-by-street vitality. Does this feel like a place you want to go to and spend time? Uh, and, Did you, know, you support? I mean, these things take time. Did you support this investment back when it was decided on a few years ago? Well, I don't remember being asked if I support it, but between you and me and whoever else is listening, uh, no, I I just don't think it's um, I just I don't think it answers the day to day problems we're having downtown, and some of those, and we'll get into it, I guess, are public safety related. Uh, I just feel like these. Big projects come in. I mean, there's nothing wrong with this. I'm not against, what did he say, 63 or 64 events a year. It's a big amount of spending. And I guess as a downtown enthusiast, I, I, I would say I want to spend every available dollar on revitalizing and reprogramming the place. And I don't know that this does it even at 64 days a year. Catherine Long, the Downtown Seattle Association, says this will, quote, this will mean millions in new spending and tax revenue, adding fuel to downtown's continued recovery. Do you doubt that? Similar to Joni, I think I'm, I'm of two minds here. You know, um, 
the question that comes to my mind is who is who is our downtown really for? Uh, is it for tourists or is it for the people who live here? I would argue that, you know, obviously Seattle has a vested interest in attracting tourism and and their uh, and their spending. <laughs> but though for those of us who live here, you know, we we want to spend time in downtown more than sixty four days a year, conceivably. Um, you know, I when I was thinking about this issue for this show, uh, I was trying to think how many times I had actually been to the convention center. And I think it was maybe twice, maybe three times. All of those were for events that I was covering as a journalist. I don't know about the rest of our panelists. Do you, do you guys spend much time at the convention center at all? I've been there about a couple times as well. But yeah, it was, again, for events that I was going to for work. But it's, it's quick... not, but it's not for locals. I haven't been to the swimming pool at the Four Seasons either. It's not for me. <laughs> Can I put a quick asterisk on something I said? I just want to be careful. He said conventions, I think, and sometimes there are more than a couple days. Just wanted to say that. Okay. Um, but yeah, that is the point. So, what are we going to do about a downtown? I've seen the headline on the new John Talton column, John Talton from the Seattle Times, uh, talking about an urban doom loop. Uh, in in this weekend's uh, writing of his, and it begins with, I've never lived in a city that's collapsing around me. He lives downtown. You know, the problems are more than a convention center addition can address. You know, we have to reprogram this place. What are we going to do about remote work? Um, I was speaking to some of the folks on the mayor's staff this week. Are we really? And this this use this was a joke from a former mayor. Ed Murray one time said, "Well, maybe if they if Amazon builds all these towers and is unable to fill them with workers, which they actually did, but now are having trouble because of remote work, you know, um, maybe I'll put." Ed Murray said, joking, maybe I'll put the homeless in the in the in the office towers. And now we are actually talking about. Um, office to housing is the phrase that's being used. We have to reprogram downtown. It is really, really suffering. Well, before I get back to the convention center, uh, Anna, I wonder if you have a different version of that. You're in you're in Richland. You spend a lot of time in you know, the Tri Cities and Yakima and uh, maybe Spokane. Is there is there a, is there another version, an East Side version of this conversation we're having? Yeah, you know, um, over here, it, a lot of talk has been going on about farmers markets and like, do we have too many farmers markets and do we have them in the right location? And should they be these big built out structures or should they be more like pop up kind of things? And so um, I, I don't know, like, do we need more infrastructure for tourists or should it be more of a of a kind of a pop-up in one of these empty building th kind of things where you take over a building for a day and and uh, make that the convention center seems like you guys have a lot of steel and steel and concrete down there to utilize i'd like you know ever all of these decisions were made in a completely different climate. So the decision to build this goes back years, right? And so it's opening now and we're comparing it in all fairness to the conditions that exist there now. Of course, if we had Amazon sit down and, and project ahead that we'd have all this remote work and all this retraction of jobs, if they could have sat down with the folks over at the convention center expansion who built a gorgeous building, it's very pretty, but and said, hey, in the future when we all, you know, don't know anything about the future, we'll figure out that these buildings could have been used for that. I mean, that's that's mildly impossible. 
Do you guys go downtown very often? I mean, I from my experience of watching Seattle people that I know, a lot of them just stay in their own neighborhood. Like if they're in Ballard, they're going to stay in Ballard and that's even on the weekend. And if they're if they're in uh, South King County, that's where they're going to be, you know? So I wonder how many locals are going downtown on a regular basis. Yeah, and I'm building on that point. Um, so speaking of, of pop-up stores and, and going downtown, one of the reasons that I have been downtown recently that I was excited about was for the Seattle Restored program that cites small businesses in vacant storefronts downtown. That seems like a great use of space to me. Pretty sure it costs less than $3 billion. It costs to fund that new convention center expansion. $2 billion, sorry, $2 billion off a magnitude of 50% there. Still a huge amount uh-huh. of money. Well, I... Th- a city has a mix of things, and and some cities, a lot of cities, have their convention centers on the outskirts of town, but Seattle has this convention center where it is. The idea, as I said, the Downtown Seattle Association says it's, it's tax revenue, and tax revenue goes to the city services of all kinds that we want. Are you saying that we don't have room for... Uh, like what else? What else should this area be? Office towers are losing tenants, as you said. Retail stores are closing. What should it be? A big Nike town? Oh, that's a good one. That hurt a lot <laughs> in the mayor's <laughs> office. So Nike town. So Nike town leaving just like in that. I think that's the picture on the column I referred to. Nike town leaving with very little notice, also known as no notice. Um, it is a big blow to downtown, but we've had many of these. You know, we have the 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 um, expected uh, Amazon leaving many of these buildings, some of the other tech firms, remote work. You know, and, and let's be fair to downtown Seattle. This is happening across the country. Downtowns are struggling to recover. And yes, I do go downtown. I've long gone downtown. Um, I used to go to a gym downtown, but you listen to that word used to. Because I'm not exactly loving downtown these days, I'm not going there anymore. It doesn't feel like it's the right uh, use of driving and going and doing. And so I'm, I'm experiencing it per- personally. I think we cannot um, minimize how much re- remote work has had an impact. Uh, something like uh, we have 44% return to the office. Other cities have less or more. But it's this is the big job for the mayor. He's He's starting his second... Uh, year in office, he has got to fix downtown. And there, as you said, you have you have to have a lot of things like uh, the new expanded aquarium, um, downtown waterfront park. I mean, there will be things that have been also long in the planning that will come along and probably, you know, help a little. But but downtown Seattle has to be job one for the mayor and the new city council that's coming in. Okay, well, the world will keep turning, so we'll see what we'll see what we think of this uh, convention center expansion in in a year and more. Let's talk about another a big uh, event, I suppose, this week is that the the capital gains tax that the legislature passed year before last, uh, you know, has finally made it to the state supreme court. We've been arguing for years, decades, over whether we can or should tax the rich, and this week the state supreme court got to hear the latest arguments 
over that capital gains tax, a 7% tax on big profits from the sale of assets like stocks and bonds, a tax that the state is planning to collect soon, as the Solicitor General Noah Purcell told the court. The tax is due on April 18th, and the legislative session is proceeding right now with budget writers, you know, factoring in whether this revenue will be available and so on. So, Joni, the the justices finally got to, to listen to arguments on both sides this week. What did we learn from these oral arguments? Anything? Well, I learned um, that the proponents uh, of the capital gains tax believe they can probably defend it from two different directions. One, which is the main argument, that it is an excise tax and therefore it's legal. Now, an, uh, it's lower... like a tax on a run a real estate sale, it, right. which we have. It's right, and they're taxing um, profits from the sale of stocks and bonds. So it's not directly they're arguing an income tax, no. but a lower court judge over there in Douglas County disagreed. And that's what sent this case to the Supreme Court. But you can tell by the arguments and even some of the ways the the justices are asking questions that even if it is an income tax, folks kind of want to revisit rulings which go back to the 1930s. And it's kind of like this is a liberal Supreme Court, and they may see it differently than that court, the, the courts have over the years and going back to the 30s. Right. We want to see if these justices see this as a property tax because you're, you're not allowed to tax property at different rates. And Correct. this would be a tax on, on, uh, on, on the rich, on the big, uh, the big um, uh, capital gains above a quarter million dollars. Catherine, opponents of this tax are trying to uh, do a little convincing of the court justices with targeted ads. Will you tell us about that? Yeah, David Gutman had a great article in the Seattle Times the other day about how the conservative think tank, the Washington Policy Center, uh, is trying to target the Supreme Court justices specifically with online ads using something called geofencing. That's basically where you send an ad to people who are only in a precise location. So they're only sending these ads telling the Supreme Court justices to, you know, reconsider this capital gains tax as an income tax to places they know the justices will be. That could be the Supreme Court building. That could be around their homes. Uh, it feels a little dystopian to me. It's certainly not illegal, I don't think. But uh, it's it's uh, an innovative use of advertising. I don't know if it will actually sway the justices' opinions at all. Well, would it be better to run untargeted ads and hope the justices just happen to see them? Kind of bump into them somewhere. <laughs> oh, why did I see that? I think the, the micro-targeting is... A little weird. I guess it's it's the future of advertising. Advertising yeah. gets more sophisticated all the time. Um, I, you know, it's free speech. The um, Public Disclosure Commission wasn't too concerned about the fact that this was going on. But I think it's kind of like it's I think it's kind of like insulting to the judges to think that, oh, if you hit me with an ad, that short little ad that said to rule the other way than I was thinking. Oh, yeah, that's how I'll do it. I won't read any, uh, you know, deep think on this or earlier opinions. I'll just that ad. You got me there. Mm -hmm. But it opens up the question that if people technologically can do this, I mean, what are what's going to be the next step? Are we going to go after jurors? Are we going to go after, you know, other other people, public servants, uh, you know, um, it, it, it is a little concerning, I think, these these targeted ads. Yeah, interesting. Would that be jury tampering? The more the more more targeted we get. Well, yes. I also think that there's a, a different message in there that donors to the Washington Policy Group, I don't know this for sure, but maybe sort of saying, 
And you know when those when those uh, Supreme Court justice races come up, we know how to advertise. Mm-hmm. Well, the tax is expected to bring in about half a billion dollars a year with proceeds going toward early childhood education, but that is if it even passes muster, and that is far from uh, known. So we'll see what happens with the state Supreme Court. Uh, you're listening to Week in Review on KUOW. I've got Catherine Long here from Insider and columnist Joni Balter. Anna King is in eastern Washington, which uh, sadly participated in this week's rash of mass shootings. And we're going to discuss uh, shootings in Yakima and elsewhere and what the legislature is considering doing about it after we come back from a short break. Support comes from Pacific Science Center, celebrating spring at Paxi with butterflies at the Tropical Butterfly House, sea creatures in the saltwater tide pool, and Jane Goodall, reasons for hope at the IMAX Theater, a journey around the globe to share good news stories. Learn more at PaxSci.org. Support comes from the Discovery Inn on Washington's San Juan Island, an island getaway that's a ferry ride away, now taking reservations for summer and fall. More information and booking available at discoveryinn.com. You're listening to KUOW's Week in Review. Or you're watching KUOW's Week in Review as we live stream the show on YouTube and Facebook. You can just search KUOW Public Radio there. I'm Bill Radke. I do want to warn you that our, the, the topic we're about to address now does uh, involve violence, so be aware of that. We've got uh, Anna King in Richland, Washington with us. Anna, you reported this week on that shooting in Yakima, a 21-year-old shot three people at a Circle K gas station and then himself. Do we have any idea why? Yeah, what we do know is that this young man had a history with drugs and a history um, with gun ownership um, and and that he had a history with the police department. And um, it's just tragic. This is like one of the the latest gun shootings that I've had to cover. I also covered the the gunman at the Fred Meyer store in Richland, Washington, that happened just, uh, you know, relatively recently. Um, it's very shocking for Eastern Washington communities to have this happen. I know, you know, that shootings happen every day in America, but in these small communities, it seems like the ripples are just really... Um, uh, a lot more because we're such a small, tight-knit community, and it just seems like it's right next door. In fact, uh, just uh, blocks from my own home, there was a shooting uh, just just the other day, and so it just kind of gives you the sense of um, that it's that it's happening so much in in our nation right now, and it's just so tragic. Anna, we have gun restriction debates year after year after year. Does this shooting in Yakima appear to have change the debate in that town i i feel like we're just kind of in this uh stagnant place which i know you mentioned as well in an earlier conversation uh it just feels like those that want guns and that are uh for guns are are not willing to budge and those that are uh 
exasperated with guns and and the the continual loss of life are are just in a quagmire and so i don't know where this nation goes i don't know what type of tragedy really has to ha- occur for us to have more of a of a productive dialogue around this or if we're just dug in on both sides and um as a rural person that grew up in a rural place i know half of my family and friends uh you know are uh very uh conscientious gun owners you know they have their guns and safes they take their gun out on a weekend for a shoot um so i can't even say like all guns are bad you know people in my family hunt they hunt ducks they hunt elk they hunt deer you know i mean those are real things but do we need these ak40 you know 40s out on the out on the landscape in city in city landscape i don't know you know yeah well joni they're having just that conversation yet again in olympia yeah, we've had this conversation for years, and um, we've gotten some places in our state with some gun laws. This this session, again, uh, Jay Inslee and um, Governor Jay Inslee and Governor-in-Waiting Bob Ferguson are again pushing— um, <laughs> Governor-in-Waiting. Uh-huh, are again pushing a ban on um, the sale of assault weapons, uh, and they have a product liability proposal as well on gun manufacturers and dealers. Uh, talking about the second one first— we have product liability on so many things. It, it makes absolutely no sense that we don't uh, do something about. Why would we exclude guns? Are we too successful on this topic? Well, I mean, a car's gas tank is not supposed to catch fire. The rifle, unfortunately, is working the way it's supposed to. Oh, okay. Well, I think that if we really want to get somewhere, we have to put a cash component into it. And so, you know, we'll have that debate in Olympia. Mm-hmm. We'll have that debate in Olympia. We are do- we are the laughingstock of the world on this topic. We're the only country that uh, I ha- I saw this chart. I sent everybody, um, you know, number of guns uh, compared to all the other countries across the top. We beat every country that not, they. It's they, not close. It's not even close. And then uh, murders per hundred thousand. You know, mm-hmm. not even close. Mm-hmm. So we are we are the country with the problem. How do we want? to solve it. I don't think we're going to look to Washington, D.C. I think it's going to come from the states. And even as you say it's going to come from the states, you look at a place like California, which has had horrible tragedies this week. California has some of the best uh, gun laws in the country. So the gun laws aren't the only answer. The question is, do they work a little and can they be made to work a little more? Yeah. Can you help listeners with I'm, I'm sorry to, I just on that one point, listeners might wonder, well, why don't st- state laws help? Well, they actually, I mean, they've been proven to help if they're used. For example, uh, something called extreme risk protection orders. They have those in California. They have those in Washington State. Mm-hmm. But if you look at some of the other states that have them, they, many, many people don't even know they exist. These are, these are red flag laws, whatever you want to call them, where you go in and you see someone is a danger to themselves or others, and you explain, you go to, a, uh, I believe you go to the local police police department. And and anyway, you report uh, the fact that someone should not be able to buy a gun for a year, and you you have to be substantial about this. And those do work. We know they work, but they have to be used and they have to be known about. 
And I also wonder about doing that, you know, like having one state be really uh, hard on guns and one state not. I mean, there's so many highways in in our nation. And it, like, look at Idaho and Washington's border. Like people are moving to Idaho because they believe this is the next conservative bastion of the U.S. and that this is where they're going to raise their family the way they want to raise their family. And do we... Uh, fragment our nation into these gun places and non-gun places. I don't know that that could be interesting from my perspective out here. Mm-hmm. Catherine, you were telling me the the Washington Post is trying to to portray to to uh, to get across the level of American gun violence that that Joni was describing. Yeah, I think this project is uh, sort of. Uh, trying to visually show the sense of overwhelmingness that comes with daily or near daily mass shootings and something that I find myself fighting against personally, emotionally. It's, it's so easy to just get dragged down into a sense of grief, this quagmire that Anna was talking about. But the, the post has a, a video series where they are uh, stitching um videos of uh, uh, a reporter uh, sort of showing slides describing uh, the latest mass shooting together with videos of a similar similar thing for all the previous mass shootings that have happened this year. And I think the intent was to sort of display this mosaic of of violence that really gets at the, the sheer number of these events that people have to endure in this country. I wonder, like, when did it become a template that, um, you know, you're having trouble at work, you're having trouble at home. And then, okay, so the solution is that I should go out outside of my home and take it out on people in a grocery store, uh, people in a mini mart, or people gathered at, you know, a concert or something. I mean, when did this become, you know, what we know that people think this way, but when did this become the template for how to deal with unbridled, I guess, emotion, anger, something like that? How did it become, like, stylish? Other countries, like I said, just think this is madness. Yeah, I wonder whether other countries, first of all, there's, there's the mental health component. There's so, that's, a, that's such a huge question. I do wonder how other people take care of one another uh, in, in a, a way that, that we don't Well, the big difference to. is the guns because yeah. other countries probably have similar mental health problems as we do. Mm-hmm. That we don't think is that different. We're, I think yeah, go ahead. Oh. Oh, sorry, Bill. I I just think this is also a really good discussion for our newsrooms. Like, how many, uh, you know, gun violence situations should one reporter cover if that is their beat? You know, if their beat is city police or their beat is just a city re- city beat in a in a busy town of shootings. Um, you know, should should reporters be cycled off of that uh, coverage because it's just it's really draining. Yeah. Uh, we're, you're listening to Week in Review. That's Anna King from Northwest, Northwest News Network and from uh, the new KUOW podcast, Ghost Herd. We have uh, political analyst Joni Balter with us. Uh, from Insider, uh, tech correspondent Catherine Long, too. And Catherine, you've been writing uh, about or your um, or Insider has been reporting on Amazon trying to get employees to stay. Stop giving confidential information to the world's most famous AI chatbot. Will you please explain this? Why would Amazon employees be doing this? 
So my colleague Eugene Kim <laughs> reported this week that Amazon's attorneys, uh, in no uncertain terms, warned Amazon employees to stop telling confidential Amazon code to chat GPT. And the reason Amazon employees might be doing this is because they want to they want a little help. Um, it's it's difficult to write code that works, especially if you're on a deadline sometimes, you know, maybe not, maybe not always. And uh, if you're able to provide ChatGPT with a snippet of code that you've already written or already exists in Amazon's code base and say, hey, write some code modeled on this piece that I've given you uh, that does X, Y, Z, that can be a real time saver, a real stress saver. And it's easy to see why software developers would, would do this. I mean, this is something that... Uh, Software developers are already doing. Microsoft has uh, another open AI, open AI being the company that, that made ChatGPT. Microsoft has an open, open AI program uh, uh, on GitHub called GitHub Copilot that, that has a similar similar functionality. But, uh, you know, the issue is also that there is a close relationship between Microsoft and uh, and OpenAI, the company behind ChatGPT. And if uh, if Amazon employees are sharing company secrets with a Microsoft-aligned company, you can see how Amazon would be pretty concerned about that. Yeah. Uh, how does it affect... First of all, I have so many questions. First of all, does it work? So does... Because we've heard that, that ChatGPT is marvelous and... And also, it's not. It's just um, aggregating and assembling. It's not. The program is not interested in being right. It's just interested in collecting what it collects, and uh, and convincingly um, uh, relaying it. So does does the Chat GPT make great code? My impression is that it makes code that is sufficient enough for Amazon engineers to want to rely on it as a coding assistant. Um, my, my hope is that these engineers are uh, checking what ChatGPT comes up with. But, you know, there's a long tradition in, in, in software development of uh, looking at the, the types of code that other people have developed and repurposing that um, in, in whatever you're working on. Um, so it's not it's not totally out of the ordinary by any means. Could they take advantage of that wonderful tool then and and somehow keep it private? Whether I guess whether that be working on their own proprietary AI bot, maybe that's around the corner. I don't know. Is there any fix for this? I mean, yeah, that that is that is one possible fix for Amazon to build something in house. Um, and uh, I, I don't see that being outside the realm of possibility. Although I have no information on whether or not that's something that's being discussed. Um, I think the fix that they're trying to do right now is sort of what uh, a lot of schools around the country are, are also suggesting, which right. is just don't do this. Stay away from chat GPT. That has not been working out very well. However. Yeah. Well, I think um, that is one of the areas that, you know, look, I, I don't think we can be Luddites about this. I think we're talking about the future. You mentioned that um, Microsoft has a relationship with um, uh, what is it called? Open Open AI. Microsoft open AI. invested something like ten billion. Ten, that would be a relationship. They're that's betting a relationship. The, they're, that's a that's, that's a, a hot one. Yeah. They're betting the five bank on this. Worth of relationship. Yeah, they're betting yeah. the bank on this. Hot and heavy. And uh, so they really believe. Get a prenup. Yeah, get a prenup. Get a room. <laughs> if, they, if they haven't already. 
But anyway, so what, you know, for schools, can you imagine what a big problem this is? You know, uh, and I and I do uh, teach at uh, Seattle U and Evans Graduate School at UW. I mean, half of what we're trying to do is get students to learn how to write and write well and to write their own stuff so that they're learning what's good and what's bad. And so, you know, this is going to have to be managed by tech and industry and, I guess, educational systems so that, I mean, we have to develop the next, what was the last, many years ago there was turnitin.com. we got to figure out, and maybe you know that there's some method to this. I don't know that. But how are we going to make sure students are still learning and not calling up Brother Chap GPT and saying, can you do my homework for me? Because who doesn't want that? But, you know, long long term, that's just not that's not going to build your writing skills. You're not going to be creative. And and I and I and I think this is really an area for sort of like future ethical. How are we going to handle this? Because you're not going to stop it. You're not going to stop it. You better figure out how to do business with it. I agree that you have to you have to look forward and and say what are how are we going to work with this because like I'm a, I'm an old timer now but I mean back in my AP class they said you can't use a style book and you can't you can't uh, use calculators you have to make sure that all of your numbers and your mathematics classes are coming from your head I mean mm-hmm. that's just old school now everybody's got a phone everybody googles everything uh, people are looking things up online to uh, write their papers. Um, I just think that that we can't ignore technology going forward. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's just no way to credibly tell students you're not allowed to use it. We have a company like BuzzFeed deciding to use Chat GPT to replace some of his reporters. You know, they said <laughs> that they were they were doing everything but reporters now. <laughs> <laughs> which which gives you a ton of confidence now. We're not going to yeah. replace the reporters yet with this, yet. But, but maybe, yeah. I mean, we're going to have to come up with a way to, to work with this and, and see what kinds of what kinds of things we're already doing can be replaced by ChatGPT. And, and, you know, it's just going to prompt a conversation about, again, yet again, as always, about what are the things that we humans can do that the technology we develop can't. Yeah, I'm glad you said that, Catherine, because there are areas where uh, ChatGPT sounds like is going to be better than people. I'm comfortable with that. We've got to figure out how to live in a new world and decide what is our highest and best use. What and and you know they're they're teaching people who are using this as a tool. First of all, you're teaching students about reality because this is this is the world they they live in. You also you can teach them how to fact check GPT. Um, chat gpt you can there's a teacher uh, i think it was the new york times was describing a teacher who you, who says okay use chat gpt to make an outline now to sort of marshal your task and now put your laptop away in the room and and take out a piece of paper Yay, and paper. write your essay longhand <laughs> and see what you can synthesize from it see what you can add to it see what you can do in a group so but Seattle Public Schools is trying. They they're they're trying to block it because they don't have the right tools to, um, to you know, to make sure students are still learning. You know, I have no problem with students looking stuff up, but then their, their job is to creatively use what they looked up and mm-hmm. write from themselves, not have, you know, uh, this little friend help them uh, do their do their schoolwork. 
you know, this this has to evolve. I think it's very concerning for education. I do think that, and, and I bet Microsoft for some of those billions there probably has thought of how to make it so that it's not um, abused in the way that we're talking about, so that it has some component whereby uh, we can still do creative stuff and judge our individual skill sets so we can get better at it. Well, this will be our final uh, KOW Week in Review uh, <laughs> with with Meet, hosted by Meet, and with a Meet panel. But I, I look forward to, to the bots taking I over think, next week. I think the bots going to um, serve better coffee in the studio, uh, be a little nicer to us sometimes, you know, all of that. People hate human journalists as it is. I think the uh, the public might uh, might appreciate this. Okay, let's take a let's take a break. That's my human judgment. I just feel intuitively that it's time to take a short break. I don't know how I know that. Million years of evolution, and uh, so we're going to do that and get right back to more of the week in review. Don't go away. Uh, you can live stream the show on Facebook and YouTube. We'll be right back. I'm Rebecca Kesby, host of BBC NewsHour. Today, Memphis is braced for reaction as footage of the killing of an unarmed man beaten to death by police is released. As political chaos continues in Peru, we'll be speaking to the former interim president and it's farewell to the BBC's Arabic radio. That's BBC NewsHour this afternoon at 1 o'clock, right after Week in Review on 94.9 KUOW, Seattle's NPR news station. Support for KUOW comes from BECU, a member-owned credit union putting people over profit, offering financial services and support to the community with access to local financial centers, over 30,000 ATMs, and online resources at BECU.org. Federally insured by NCUA. This is KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke, and this week my journalist panel is insider tech correspondent Catherine Long, political analyst and contributing columnist Joni Balter, Northwest News Network correspondent and host of the new KUOW podcast, Ghost Herd, one of the great cattle swindles of all time, hint, not real cattle, uh, Anna King. Anna, thanks for, for, for being with us. It's great to be here. So, I, Anna, you, you reported a wonderful story about the science of getting rid of Northwest chickens infected with avian flu, and it involves carbon dioxide and mass composting. Will you please tell us what's going on? <laughs> well, it's a little bit gross, it but grim. it's fortunate because it's not I, a little I, bit. I, okay. I, I like science. Gross. Okay, I'm warning. You're right. I'm, I'm <laughs> warning listeners. This is not pretty. Uh, this is this is a kind of violence, and it's and it's kind of. I know. I'm anyway. I'll I'll hand it over to you, Anna. Okay. Well, basically, the the problem is they have millions of chickens that are dying or or being uh, humanely euthanized uh, because of bird flu in this country. And what do you do with all those chickens? Can you move them? Can you? Uh, burn them up? Can you, uh, how do you get rid of these millions and millions of chickens? And it, it is our agricultural system that we, we like uh, cheap food. We like the availability of our food uh, all the time year round. And so that has bred bigger and bigger operations. So when one of these operations has a problem, it's a real vulnerability 
uh, for bird flu. And so one of the ways that they're able to uh, kind of dispose of these birds is by composting them. And it sounds gross, but it's not like your backyard, you know, veggie pile you got in the corner of your yard. This is high tech science. And what they do is they mix the birds with like a, a organic material, like a wood chip or a corn chop or a straw. And then they uh, cover the whole windrow with the with that organic material as well after they mix them all up and then they try to get to heat so that they actually slow cook these birds for two separate rounds of of cooking so that by the end of the of the day there's no bones there's no beaks there's nothing left they're just soil and um that soil can be applied on any kind of crop or, or landscape in the state of Washington. There's no restrictions on that. You guys look uncomfortable. I'm I sorry. I am uncomfortable. And I'll tell you, <laughs> I'm going to turn it over to, to Catherine and Joni, but I'm uncomfortable because I'm realizing that I probably have a different, you know, I, I probably will be composted. I am, I am, uh, by next week, when chat, it's coming soon. When Chat GPT takes your sure, yeah. sure. Okay. Um, I am, I am, uh, ho- sort of horrified slash delighted at the at science and at what human reporters do to portray what is so fascinating about our world. But I feel like I let that creep into my introduction of this topic as if it's much sunnier than it is. It's terrible. It's it's dying birds and avian flu, uh, but uh, so um, there I've I, I've positioned it better that way. I have I could just ask a hundred questions, but so so can well, you. Well, and backing Catherine. up, I mean, this is a massive problem throughout the U.S. If you haven't been following this problem, we have one of the worst outbreaks ever uh, in the U.S. and across the globe of bird flu, and this is a real problem not only for our chicken houses and the price of eggs and the price of chicken in the in the supermarkets. But it's also a problem for the spillover effect that could occur. The, the, the amount of viral load you have in the environment uh, dictates the chances of that that virus is going to jump into a different species, into uh, humans. And, uh, you know, the, the veterinarians that I've spoken to are are awake nights thinking about the possibilities. They're seeing this jump into otters and seals and uh, different raptor birds. And so, I mean, to see this go into humans would be catastrophic. Again, another pandemic that we could be dealing with. That sounds awful. That sounds so bad. But Anna, I have to admit, my, my my brain sort of shut off after you said two words earlier in your introduction. Those two words were slow cooker. Yes. This is not this is not like the slow cooker I'm using to make my stews, right? This is very different. Yeah, it is. They they make these large piles like a uh, a big uh if you imagine like a football field long and then you imagine a pile that's long in length that would go down the whole the whole all the yards of the football field and it would be seven to eight feet tall. That's what we're talking about here. And it's a pile of chickens and organic material. And um, but the cool thing is, is that 
The scientists tell me this stuff should not smell. If done right, it should not smell, it should not leak, it should not uh, make foul uh, neighbors, uh, you know, it should not make neighbors upset. Uh, it should be fairly safe and sane. So um, I think it is an interesting solution to a very bad problem. And I didn't know, but there's whole... Uh, rings of scientists that study nothing but compost and and how to get rid of uh, human, chicken, other types of large animal bodies. And one thing that I thought was particularly interesting was that this is a really nice thing for rural people who have a bit of land and maybe have a horse or two or or a, a small herd of cattle that they're able to take care of their animal on their ground and that that animal becomes part of the farm instead of is hauled away by a knacker or taken off the farm that they can actually lead that horse or, or cow or or large animal to its final resting place and put it down humanely um, and be with it in its last moments. I think that was really the touching part of the story when I was researching it. I, I feel like maybe I've seen too many um, end of the world as we know it, um, movies or something, but it has a little bit of that feeling to me like, and then the birds and the animals got sick and the waters grew dangerous. I mean, I'm just wondering, does this uh, foul, the fact that so many of these um, birds and animals are getting this flu, does it make your, you know, the future of, you know, Lake Washington or something, uh, does it put that in danger? Because I feel like I'm looking at the crows and some of the other birds a little meanly lately mm. well you should be okay with uh most of your crows and songbirds and your hummingbirds their body temperature veterinarians tell me is too high for most of uh, them to be affected by this bird flu it's your waterfowl your uh, cranes, the, be the beautiful sandhill cranes that come across, the ducks, the um, the chickens, the guinea fowl, those are the real uh, ones that have a, a real reaction to the virus, but also can carry the virus from place to place. And that brings me to another interesting fact, which is that as the migrations happen, there's, you know, dozens and dozens of species of these animals that come up from uh, southern areas into the north during the spring, during the spring migration. And as each one lands, as each of these varieties of birds land into these water holes, they deposit a little of the virus or a lot of the virus and kind of party hardy with each other, mingle, have a kager. And then they depart for their next landing spot. And then another succession of birds comes. They lay down more virus and catch the virus and move it. So the building of the viral load on the environment continues throughout the spring and gets worse and worse. And so spring is coming. And it, it is a real concern that we'll see more of this and more scarcity of chicken and eggs in the future, not less, because there will be more viral load moving around on the landscape. So speaking of chicken and eggs, um, can I make this political here for a minute? I swear uh, some of the conservatives, Fox News uh, stations, act like they never heard of bird flu uh, because they keep um, sort of obsessing over egg prices, which are indeed very high. But somehow it's Joe Biden's fault and they don't know that this is going on and limiting 
you know, the 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 product. I mean, I don't understand how that hasn't been explained better. Well, and, you know, it takes four to five months for a small uh, chicken to become a, a real full tilt egg layer. So even when you are recovered and you say, let's hit the start button on this chicken house, it takes four to five months to ramp up into egg production. And then the egg production is staggered in different barns. So they don't have all their chickens start at the same time. They're trying to stagger so they have a a, a whole uh, months long supply, not just a brief period of time with egg layers. So that's why we're so behind in the egg production. And it's it's really crazy out there. I talked to a local baker at Ethos in Richland. Uh, she makes wonderful breads and, and different uh, sweets. And she buys uh, cases and cases of eggs. And she said for one case, that's 15 dozen. It was 25 to 30 bucks last year. Now it's $95. So if you're seeing those egg prices in your stores or egg scarcity you're not imagining things it's really happening we are down uh quite a bit of percentage of just layers in all of america anna king is among other things the host of kow's new podcast ghost herd which by the way touches on some of the pressures that we've just begun to hint at that farmers face in this case um in the cattle business so check out the KOW's Ghost Herd where you get your podcast. We're near the end of the show now, and I want to uh, please um, have something to smile about after uh, after that unsettling depiction of the uh, mutating superbugs uh, in animals. I go to you, Catherine Long, for a more pleasant, some more pleasant cooking news. <laughs> Yes, so I, I I cover Amazon. I follow uh, Jeff Bezos's partner Lauren Sanchez on Instagram. Yeah. This week she posted a photo of herself. Looks like she's in her kitchen with a film crew. She's holding a can of garbanzo beans of a variety that you can buy at Whole Foods owned by Amazon. <laughs> and she says, "Cooking up something special for you guys," which leads me to believe that she is starting a cooking show. I I couldn't get in touch with her team to confirm this, but. Um, you know, it, it, it made me smile because I was thinking, you know, this is a, a super successful person. She's a helicopter pilot. She's one half of the, the richest couple in the world. You know, she's leading all these charities. And what's next for her? Taking on Paula Dean, showing us all how to make hummus. <laughs> she's also going to do an all-women space flight next year. She talked to the Wall Street Journal and, and on Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin rocket, it's going to be Lauren Sanchez and Women Making a Difference in space, and if you thought there were a lot of uh, bad uh, jokes about the shape of the Bezos rocket last time, uh, w- w- wait until it's his significant other on board. But but it but I don't I'm I'm she wouldn't say who's you know who's going to be on board. Who are the women making a difference? That's going to be interesting. And one more piece of uh, uh, gossip news for us, please, Catherine. Oh well, so again via Instagram. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Seattle had a bit of a run-in with the influencer uh, scene this week. Um, uh, Carolyn uh, Carolyn Calloway, uh, who rose to some notoriety a couple of years ago as a, a, a scam artist, now marketing herself as a redeemed scam artist, uh, absolutely ravaged the city of Seattle on Instagram. She said, uh, a little known fact about me is I lived in Seattle for three months, and let me tell you something, no city has ever been a worse fit for me. The granola, the rock climbing, 
the outdoor performance gear worn indoors at these weird little concerts that people would throw in the basements of houses they shared with seven other roommates. <laughs> Seattle was an organ transplant that my body rejected flat out. I'm not saying I hated Seattle. I'm saying Seattle hated me. <laughs> I saw the dragging on Twitter uh, uh, reaction to all of that. Uh, so you can check it out yourself. I had never heard of Caroline Calloway. But just in the in the couple minutes we in the minute or so we have that uh, that's a good segue, Joni, to what you told me was making you happy with something about Seattle that makes some people sad. Yeah, maybe she missed this. You know, yeah, maybe Caroline. Maybe she missed it. She didn't know that on whatever today is uh, January twenty seventh, mm-hmm. we had our first uh, five o'clock sunset last night, five o one, and these last all the way through the beginning of November. And what it means, it really means this, we survived January, much of it, and by Big Dark. Yes. Uh, we, they talked about this on, uh, on Seattle Now, KOW's daily podcast, Seattle Now. The host, Patricia Murphy and Justin Shaw from the Seattle Weather Blog. Uh, Justin Shaw said whenever he writes about the 5 o'clock sunset milestone, he hears from people say, no, I choose to live here at latitude 47. I like to refer to them as the vampires. but no. uh, <laughs> You embrace the darkness and you don't complain about it. And, you know, so I, I've seen, you know, I've been doing this countdown on Twitter, right? Pretty much every day, like 18 days till sunsets at 5 p.m., 17, 16, 15. Um, and there's always a couple of folks who are like, boo, hiss, boo, you know, like, <laughs> let the darkness rain. Um, you know, that, that true Seattleites would it be, uh, you know, looking forward to the sun. Are you from California? You know, that kind of stuff. Well, I would say a true Seattleite appreciates both. It's okay to love the winter, love the end of winter, love people who feel differently. Anna King, will you close the show? Because you strike me as a lover of it, of it all in the Northwest. <laughs> Well, I sure love what's coming up. Um, That is that calving season is just around the corner. Uh, I've been talking to some of my close ranchers. And, uh, you know, at the peak of birth, some ranchers can see dozens of calves a day. And they come in the frozen earth. You know, they come where there's frost on the sagebrush. And they hit the earth like steaming black wet seals on the earth. And they're wet and they're black and they're so cute and their mothers lick them dry. And um, it's just a a sign that all is new again, that we have spring, that we're ready for it. Spring is coming. Uh, Thank you so much, Anna King, Northwest News Network and KOW's podcast Ghost Heard. Insiders Catherine Long, political analyst Joni Balter and producer Kevin Kniestet. Thanks, everybody, for being our show this week. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.